Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 152. Spring training is well underway, and we are staying busy, but that doesn't mean that the content will be running out. Uh, today, I've got an awesome guest uh, from the orthopedic world, um, has done some really, really cool stuff, not just in the clinical realm of seeing patients and creating creative solutions to help them along, but also more recently, he's had some landmark studies in the realm of arm health and the relationship to showcase appearances. So, some really, really important stuff for our younger players here, their parents and their coaches that shed some insights on how we can best keep our healthy uh, arms you know, progressing the way that we want them to be. And in particular, how we manage some of those high level arms that really have a, a lot of arm speed at a young age. And we, we joke they're often arms that are writing checks that the butt can't cash. So um, some really, really good insights from an accomplished researcher and clinician in this show. I think you're really going to like it. Overuse injuries have emerged as one of the biggest threats to players at every level of competition. As an example, at the professional level, ulnar collateral ligament injuries at the elbow alone sideline pitchers for an average of over 17 months. That's a ton of lost development and a threat to lengthy careers. Just as concerningly though, for youth players, overuse is the predominant mechanism of injury. So what can be done? Obviously, we need to train athletes to be prepared for all the stresses the game throws at them. However, the other side of the equation, recovery, often doesn't get the attention it deserves. Healthy, recovered arms mean you can stay in the game and give your best on the field, and that's where Mark Pro comes in. Mark Pro is a cutting-edge recovery tool that provides all the benefits of active recovery, but without the extra effort, muscular fatigue, or stress to tendons and joints. Players can use Mark Pro as long as needed for exceptional recovery between training sessions or after games. We'll often send Mark Pro units back with athletes to their hotels or even have them use them on team flights. Both easy to use and portable, Mark Pro is a powerful tool that allows recovery anywhere, anytime. Use it while relaxing at home, on the road, or during tournaments. On a personal note, I was originally a naysayer when it came to Mark Pro. However, longtime Cressy Sports performance athlete Corey Kluber turned me on to it. He adopted Mark Pro into his post-pitching recovery approach, and it was an integral part of him going out and throwing 200 innings year after year. This led me to experiment with it myself and with more of our athletes, and the feedback was consistently outstanding. Now, just a few years later, you'll see it in every major league organization as part of the routines of some of the most accomplished baseball players on the planet. If you're looking for the same results enjoyed by these athletes, visit markpro.com and use the coupon code CRESSY at checkout for an exclusive discount. Again, that's markpro.com, M-A-R-C-P-R-O.com, and use the coupon code CRESSY, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, at checkout for an exclusive discount. Today's guest received his bachelor's from Boston College and moved on to medical school at the Tufts University School of Medicine. He followed it up with pediatric residencies at Rhode Island Hospital and Brown University, and then completed a fellowship in primary care sports medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. With 41 peer-reviewed publications to his credit, his research interests include injury prevention in youth sports, throwing injuries, and sports-related concussion. He's been a team physician at Brown University since 2012 and is an active member of the Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine Society. He's lectured at numerous national meetings on the topic of youth sports injuries. He serves as an associate professor of orthopedics at Rhode Island Hospital and Brown University as the chief of the Division of Primary Care Sports Medicine at University Orthopedics. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Preeter Kriz. Dr. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time. This is long overdue, and I'm, I'm very excited for this episode. As am I. Thanks again for the opportunity. No problem. So we, we started, I think, emailing about this 
it was back in the fall when when your first study was uh, was published in kind of this showcase realm, and um, so I've been anxiously awaiting the opportunity to to see the publication of the second one that I think was equally impactful. But I think maybe a good place to start is you know obviously when you, when you go into the the world of orthopedics, there's probably a million different directions you can go, um, but you really got excited about you know helping young athletes and more you know in particular young baseball players. What was it that that kind of led you down that path? Yeah, I think it was my first exposure to travel ball with my son when he was in eighth and ninth grade. So that 13, 14, 15 year old age. And it just amazed me how many overuse injuries that I was seeing and, and kind of knew what the diagnosis was, but it was really challenging to get parents and their athletes to seek medical attention. The one that really comes to mind is the stress injuries in the lower back, the spondylolysis that I know you're also uh, pretty passionate about too, and can be a real challenging acute and chronic injury to deal with, and particularly rotational sports, but baseball in particular. Absolutely. Um, so you obviously had this experience, you know, with your own son, you know, what, what was the most eye-opening part of that? You know, it's one thing to be excited about like a particular industry injury that maybe, you know, obviously has a, you know, a complex diagnostic, you know, picture or something like that. But, you know, for you, there, there obviously was a personal element to it. Was it, what was it about travel ball that, you know, that maybe frustrated you the most? Yeah, and, and so the I, most? I think the thing that was most disheartening was I saw really high level kids that were maybe uh, the early matures, you know, they were bigger, stronger, faster in eighth grade, but they could generate a lot of power, a lot of torque, a lot of force, but um, just because where they were in their, their developmental stage, uh, perhaps, you know, their, their spine wasn't ready to take on that force and just the overuse, you know, as we all see it, you know, kids are going to the cages sometimes five days a week, taking hundreds of swings. And so I, I literally saw a couple of kids in the batter's box who, and you've probably seen it too, they, they're swinging, they have pain, they have to step out. And sometimes they just fall, they fall right, right yeah. to the ground. And, and, uh, I had a, I had conversations with with moms and dads. I said, "Look, I think this is a this is an injury that you really need to get some medical attention to." And tried to direct them either to myself or, or obviously some of the the, the uh, clinicians that I've worked with that would act as more of a neutral party. And it was very hard to get them number one to stop playing um, and to recognize that hey, this may be an injury that is now acute, but may ultimately be chronic and could jeopardize their son's career down the line. And, and, and I think spondylolysis can do that. You know, it, it really can rear its head later on. And, and even if you kind of get through the initial treatment and manage them and get their pain under control, they get to higher levels in college ball where, uh, you know, they have to generate more force and more exit velocity and more pitch velocity. You know, it, it tends to be a chronic injury that in my experience has sidelined a lot of kids from achieving their dreams. Yeah. And, and I definitely want to, I'm going to circle back to that later. Cause like you said, that's something that I think I saw my first one back in 2006 and, you know, it rocked my world just, you know, obviously the debated, you know, kind of protocols on whether to brace or not to brace and, and all that. So um, I, I would love to get your take, but yeah, I'll give you, know, I think, can I give I, you a quick pearl. Yeah, I think, sure. I think low back pain in an athlete, we're not talking about a sedentary kid playing video games. Mm -hmm. Low yeah. back pain in an athlete for three weeks, you should seek medical attention because it's a different animal. Yeah. And I think with, with these stress injuries in the spine, early detection probably uh, leads to the best outcomes. That's, that's a great point. And, and 
super consistent with it, I guess, you know, I wouldn't call it my clinical experience, but my, my anecdotal experience, um, you know, so certainly you're seeing, you know, the stress fractures that's, that's become, you know, right in your wheelhouse, but you're seeing plenty of other stuff. What, what are the, the things that you're are crossing your desk on, you know, the youth baseball injuries the most these days? Yeah, obviously it's seasonal, right? I mean, it used mm-hmm. to be these overreduced injuries we would see mid-season, you know, mid-summer. And it amazes me now that baseball has become a year-round sport, and particularly for the throwing athlete. A lot of these kids, unfortunately, are throwing, in my opinion, 10, 11, sometimes 12 months out of the year. So we're seeing – I'm seeing a lot of stress injuries. I'm seeing um, – Electron stress injuries, you know, in January and February, just amazing. Like, like fractures on x-rays, not just edema on their MRIs. And, you know, just it speaks to the, the volume and the workloads that kids are now taking on, particularly at younger ages. But most commonly, you know, pain in the inside of the elbow, the medial elbow. And that, that diagnosis really depends on their age and their level of, yeah. of skeletal maturity. So in the young kids, it's going to be the little league elbow where it's the inflammation of, of the growth plate. But then we can see the avulsion injuries where a piece of bone pops off the medial epicondyle with the flexor pronator um, tendon and the, and the muscle. And then certainly a lot of just flexor pronator mass strains, but then ranging right into the, the UCL injuries, ranging from a low grade to a, a high grade sprain, proximal distal injuries. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. And then on the other side of the elbow, the lateral elbow, we see the, the radiocapitellar osteochondritis desiccans, the OCD lesions, which are a little bit more yeah. chronic. Um, you know, so that's something where X-ray can really help with your diagnosis. And we're seeing some uh, shoulder instability too, both dominant arm and non-dominant arm. So the position players that are diving back into bags, head first sliding, laying out for line drives, um, they're sustaining these instability events. They can be subluxations. They can be dislocations more commonly anterior but and then with the the hitters we're seeing the batter shoulder which is more of a yeah. posterior glenohumeral instability event um but as kids are getting bigger and stronger and, and generating more force we're seeing the shoulder injuries just as commonly and you're seeing them earlier too i think that's the scary part is the forces are you know they're, they're effectively outpacing skeletal maturity in a lot of these kids yeah. And as you know, as we'll probably talk about in this discussion, it's, it's all about the kinetic chain. You have kids that maybe a couple of their links are strong, but, you know, hitting, throwing, it's, 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 a, it's, it's efficiency, right, between each of those links. And sometimes you have one that is, is stronger and, and more stable than the other, and that really can lead to some difficulty. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and we kind of alluded to it, but beyond the clinical realm, you're, you've been a very prolific researcher, um, a lot of, a lot of scholarly publications, you know, everything ranging from stress fractures in the low back to concussion management, all that stuff. Um, but I think the, the most recent stuff has, has certainly been in the realm of, you know, seeing youth baseball injury trends. And, and you've had two studies published. Um, I think the first one was, was American Journal of Sports Medicine, um, th- this past August of 2022. Um, you know, I, I love it in your words, you know, summarize, you know, kind of how you attack the study, what, you know, maybe first, what drew you to investigating this? And then I know that data set also provided, you know, some really, really important insights on a, on a second study. So sure. let, let's dig in on it. Yeah, I'd love to. I, I don't want to bore you or your readers. So if there's a point mm-hmm. where we just get too into the, the minutiae, stop me. But, you know, if we take the 30,000 foot view for risk factors for ulnar collateral ligament injuries and, and, and reconstruction, Tommy John, uh, we, we know what these risk factors are, right? They're, they're pitch counts. They're how many innings you're pitching in a season. It's pitch velocity. 
it's throwing mechanics, it's your days of rest, fatigue, but, but showcase participation has been, been known as a risk factor. Um, up until our studies, there was pretty limited data. Most of the studies came from survey data from telephone and internet-based surveys um, that were looking at showcases as a risk factor. But um, a lot of that depended on, it was very subjective, right? It was based on reporting from uh, the players themselves, and it really didn't have yeah. a lot of objective data. So, you know, getting back to travel ball, um, about the time my son and a lot of his travel ball teammates were in the recruiting process, we were looking at uh, performance data in a number of the, the showcase organizations' websites. You know, it's pretty easy to look up. It's public data. Yeah. Um, and it was, we were all kind of looking at everyone's players' metrics. And we qu- quickly realized that there was really a, a plethora of information on pitchers, including elite pitchers, guys that were being drafted in high rounds, you know, detailed de- uh, dates of their showcase appearances, the pitch velocities, the pitch types. Um, and we had known about John uh, Rogola's Tommy John surgery list that's on the internet. It's a Google spreadsheet from other studies we've done. So where you can get uh, pretty reputable data in terms of when someone tore their, their own ligament, when they were having Tommy John surgery. So we started thinking about the study, a study assessing the association between high school showcases and UCL injury, particularly in elite pitchers. So we looked at, we were particularly interested in pitchers that were selecting the top five rounds of the major league baseball draft because those pitchers historically have the best likelihood of, of reaching the MLB level. Um, and we found quickly that 80% of the pitchers in the top five rounds of the MLB draft in the past decade. So we studied between 2011 and 2020, 80% of these pitchers had showcase performance data. And we realized, Hey, we were onto something. We could probably get some, some good data out of this. And so obviously you investigate this, um, you know, I think it was 659 pitchers in all that you, you scrutinized. And then the first thing that jumps off the page is 229 of them. So 27% of them, you know, basically had UCL reconstruction at, at the time of that surgery. So that's, that's a pretty eye popping number. Um, you know, and, and I don't think it was surprising, right? Higher peak fastball velocity really predicted the subsequent injury, you know, which we, we know that's been, you know, yep. obviously pretty well represented in the research is the harder you throw the, I think, you know, there was one particular study that showed that every, you know, average mile per hour increase was about a 15% increase in, in elbow, um, you know, reconstruction risk. But talk to me a little bit about what you found in terms of the relationships between, um, you know, showcase appearances and then obviously the, you know, the longer term outcomes. Sure. So if we look at the first study, the one that you, you cited, that was yeah. looking at, you know, really our, we, we want to know if, if high school showcase were show associated, you know, with uh, UCL injuries in these pitchers. And, and, you know, taking a step back, we're looking at an association here, not causation, but an association, yeah. right? So we were kind of interested in a number of different things. And we thought that the, the high level pitchers that could achieve fastball velocity thresholds that were in that 90, 92, 95 mile per hour range at showcases at younger ages, we thought they would be more likely to undergo UCL reconstruction earlier in their years or in their careers. And, and, you know, we kind of chose that threshold arbitrarily, but we had done a previous study, Steve DeFroda, myself, um, in Dr. Fideli, Paul Fideli, in, in 2017 that we published and we, we found that pitchers that uh, had UCL out tears had a mean fastball velocity of about 91.7 during the regular season versus 91 in a match control group that didn't tear. So we kind of knew that ballpark 90, 92, 
would be a threshold that was was um, potentially significant. And then there was another survey of amateur and pro pitchers that identified 90 to 95 miles per hour as the average velocity pitchers associate with UCL tear. So that's why we kind of chose that 90, 92, 95 mile per hour threshold range in this study. So that, that was our first hypothesis that elite pitchers that could achieve those velocities at an earlier age at showcases, they'd probably tear earlier in their careers. And the second was that we thought that elite pitchers that participated in high showcase volumes in high school would be more likely to undergo reconstruction versus pitchers participating in fewer showcases. So the one thing we didn't, we didn't prove the second hypothesis. We did prove part of the first hypothesis, that being that the pitchers that achieved fastball velocity thresholds of 90, 92 miles per hour earlier in their careers, they did they were more likely to have early UCL tears than those that tear, tore later. So, um, you know, the we one of the things we found was that the likelihood of undergoing UCL reconstruction increased by about twenty percent for every mile per hour increase in, in peak fastball velocity. The showcases that goes along with with some of the data that you you uh, reported. One of the unexpected findings that we really didn't expect was that so the pitchers that achieved a fastball velocity threshold 95 miles per hour at these high school showcases they actually had a significantly lower odds of ucl reconstruction um during the, the time period that we studied and and you know we didn't expect that we thought higher velo more likely that they're gonna they're tearing and it just may be that we've been given this some thought but maybe they just have such good mechanical efficiency mm-hmm that you know they they're just their their energy transfer throughout the chain is just so efficient they're they're at a lower mm-hmm. risk I, I don't really have a, a good explanation for that otherwise um one interesting thought i just had as you as you mentioned that is one of the things that i'm fascinated about we, and we've had some of these these really really elite high school arms kids that win the you know top couple rounds who you know in some cases have pitched in the high 90s even up to 100 one of the things that's always shocked me is actually how little their throwing volume is. Yes, it's very high pressure, showcase driven, area codes, things like that. But their actual pitching volume, like it's very hard for a kid that throws in the mid to high 90s to go out there and throw 100 innings because there's so much of that summer showcase. So there may be like a, a little bit of like a protective mechanism for the elite guys where they're, they have a very manicured schedule. Whereas that kid that throws 91 to 94, who's not a slam dunk, like that's the kid that goes out and wants to you know, be seen, right? Yeah, instance, I, yeah. I do think there is an element of that, and I, I think it's it, it it's piqued my interest and something I want to study more. Um, you know, the challenge here, obviously, this study I'm jumping around a bit, but you know, studies like this are going to have limitations, right? You're going to have reporting bias and and everything else, and so like it's a retrospective study. This is not a prospective study. You're kind of limited with the variables that you can that you can tease out of the database or the de- the data itself, you know, so you can't look at all of these risk factors that we're talking about in terms of like innings pitched, how many teams you're pitching on through the course of a year, all those other things. So, but nonetheless, you know, it, it, it did provide to me like a lot of eye opening information, you know, particularly looking at the showcases. So we looked at um, the early versus the late career UCL reconstruction groups within the subset of, of, of pitchers that we've talked about. And we found that um, the age of first showcase, the age they first showcased a slider 
and the age that they achieved the 90 mile per hour fastball velocity threshold at showcases was significantly younger in the early compared to the late career UCL reconstruction group. So um, I think another thing that was really, uh, we, we looked at trends over the decades. So obviously we collected data for 10 years. And if you, we have in the, in the papers, a nice table that really demonstrates this visually. It's hard just to kind of uh, take from verbally from me, but I'll, I'll tell you what the key significant findings were. We found that the mean age over the, that decade from 2011 to 20, the mean age at first UCL reconstruction decreased by over three and a half years. So mean age initially was about 24 and it's now about 20 years old in this group of elite pitchers, first five rounds of the MLB draft that we're talking about. Okay. So the mean number of high school showcases they participated increased greater than twofold during that decade. So the mean of three increased to six high school showcases uh, per pitcher, basically. Um, the mean age that the, the pitchers achieved that 90 mile per hour threshold and showcase decreased by about half a year from about 17.2 down to 16.7 years. And then that's a big, that's a big deal. Like uh, six months is a, a giant developmental timeline for a teenager. Sure. And then finally, the mean age of first showcase, this is the one that really caught our attention, decreased by about a year from 16.5 down to 15.6. So kids are now starting the first, their showcase careers uh, as pitchers, you know, particularly at the elite level under the age of 16, which obviously isn't surprising for those of us that are in travel organizations or have had that experience. I mean, you've got, nine new national uh, rankings yeah. now, right? So really this is what's scary, right? I mean, this yeah. is what you're getting into, I, I think, to some extent. Um, and so, you know, take-home points, pitchers are showcasing at younger ages. They're achieving that 90-mile-per-hour threshold at younger ages. They're showcasing more. The age of first UCL reconstruction is getting younger and younger. Um, you know, so, again, like, there, there are concerns here. There, there are a lot of things. I think why why showcases matter is a lot of those UCL um, reconstruction risk factors are there. High pitch counts, high pitch velocities, few days of rest and fatigue, right? You go to these four or five day tournaments and depending on how many arms you have, how many injuries you're going to be called upon. And and one of the things we'll talk about later is there, there really isn't a lot of um, – of surveillance in terms of pitch count guidelines or even enforcement of, of, uh, of, you know, if we want to go to pitch smart, which is, which is really now for the last eight years been what everyone's aiming for in terms of, of, uh, of medically respected guidelines for reducing uh, arm injuries, you know, there's just not a lot of surveillance and enforcement at the showcase of the tournament level. I love that you um, you recapped, and as I was thinking about, it, I was thinking back to just the um, the number you outlined earlier that ninety one point seven uh, in two thousand seventeen. I think it yep. was that wasn't far off of major league fastball velocity. Obviously, obviously now it's up over ninety three, and um, you know, like I know, I mean, I was around the hardest throwing team in major league history last year. Like, there's seriously a you know a giant trend in the velocity development you know kind of era as the game has become more specialized. But you know, at the end of the day, we're we're looking at a scenario where we have kids who are skeletally mature, they're underdeveloped, who are able to throw as hard as the average major league pitcher effectively. Like it's, it's rising almost along the same path. So it's, it's really a recipe for disaster when we're putting them in more situations and no one's saying don't throw hard. You know, it, it's really more of a discussion of at what point should velocity development become front and center and, and when should we be, 
kind of pitching to the radar gun at all, if, yeah. if we ever get to that. Point. I'm glad it's you brought that so up because soon. I think this yeah. gets to the crux of the thing. I, I'd really like to see yeah. there be a velocity trajectory. Obviously, you're going to have that kid yeah. who's 15 years old, is shaving, he's 220 pounds, he's 6'4". I don't worry about him. I worry about the 170-pound, 6'4 kid who's a giraffe. Um, yeah. you know, who's, who's touching 90 because he's, he doesn't have the, the lower segment strength and the core, uh, to protect his arm, you know? And so, uh, you know, as I, I get it, you know, kids want to throw hard because they want scholarships and they, they, they want uh, bonus money. Maybe if they're at, at that caliber where they can actually be drafted, you know, that's, that's the meal ticket, but, why does a 16 or a 15 year old need to be throwing 92 miles per hour? So they, they're throwing, you know, they're striking all the kids in their state or at least in their conference, you know, obviously that's going to differ depending on where you're living around the country. And, and, uh, but I don't, you know, I think that's part of this. If we're, if we're actually recognizing there are these, these fastball velocity thresholds that once you cross that you're in a red zone, I think that's what we need to do is take a step back and say, look, a 15, 16 year old doesn't need to be throwing 92. Mm -hmm. We have a, a kid, um, you know, I mentioned by name who trains with us. And he's been very healthy. He literally shot up six inches. He was six foot one at age 14 and he showed up again. And he's six, seven at age 15. He's 86 to 90. Um, you know, he's exactly what you'd expect, right? Femurs and, and a humerus that just keep stretching out muscles and tendons can't keep up or he is elastic as can be, you know, to his credit, he's done a good job of maintaining his mobility. But, you know, there's a guy where I just, I sat down and I had a conversation with the family and I said, you know what, you're, you're, you're training is great. You're taking good care of yourself, but you play by a completely different set of rules. The stresses on you are entirely different than, you know, your, your best friend who throws 76 and, you know, hasn't grown into his body is, is you have to manage it differently. And I, I think that's the hard part about it is there's always someone who wants to go to the complete opposite of the spectrum and they want to take that guy. And that's a, you know, it's a guy who's going to win them some trophies or it's someone that they can showcase as look what we built with our program and, and really highly puberty and good genetics. They pick the right parents or, or what create a lot of that. What you should hang your hat on is when that kid, you know, gets to age 18 and is drafted and without an injury or, you know, goes on to a good college career and, and you know, doesn't miss out on development because that's what's at the crux of this is beyond just, you know, the actual surgical interventions that take place and all that. But there's a, there's a psychosocial aspect to, you know, being hurt, going through all that and, and missing a lot of development. People, people lose sight of how much lower the success rate is when, when a player has a Tommy John yeah. and misses. You know, I'm glad you teams. brought that up because I, I start counseling families about that. Um, you know, obviously there are a lot of myths. There's still the myth out there that if you, you tear and you have Tommy John, you're going to come back throwing harder, which is a myth by the way. Yeah. Um, and we should, we should, we should have like a, a quotable here to confirm the native ligament is stronger than the replacement ligament. Correct. And, and so I think the, the, what I have started telling families is look, because I, I've just like you, we've rehabbed high school kids through Tommy John. And it's, it's oftentimes, you know, if you look at the data, it's, it's 12, 15 months, but oftentimes it can be 15, 18, they're missing two seasons. It's essentially twice as long the recovery as an ACL injury, right? I mean, ACL now we're not returning kids to six months, returning at, at nine to 12, because we're finding the, the risk of retear is higher if you go back a little early. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, Tommy John recovery is 12 to 18 months. 
Um, and psychologically, I, I, you know, I've seen kids go through it. It, it is, I think, one of the hardest rehabilitations I've, I've, I've ever been around. And just trying to keep that kid motivated and busy and, and just their eye back on. It, it's so hard to watch your friends at that age playing baseball. And, and you know, it's the, it's the one thing that you love the most that you can't do. It's a big deal. Um, so the second study, and, and you know, I, I should point out, these were both American Journal of Sports Medicine studies. Like it is not a pushover journal. This is very high level peer reviewed stuff that, you know, we can really hang our hat on as important. And, and they were published in, in the AJSM both times. So cre credit to you guys for, for doing a great job with it. Um, the second study I, I think was, you know, probably even more compelling if, if not equally compelling. Um, and this is where you actually started talking about career trajectories, where it wasn't just about like, you know, how to showcase stuff relate to, um, you know, the actual injury rate. It was more about how do they do? And I think that's an equal part of it because it's a it's a trickle down effect. Right. What happens when you do have early Tommy Johns? How does it interfere with your ability to develop? Um, you know, and is it also a sign that you are someone that maybe. I guess, chase the wrong pass early in your career. Instead of learning how to pitch, you learned how to throw a ball 98 to the backstop. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're two different studies, right? But I think yeah. equally important. I think yeah. uh, my, my hope here is that kids and parents read these studies because I think everyone thinks their kid's going to be different and that somehow you're going to avoid this injury. But there are too many kids, families that are falling into the same pitfalls and, and, and they're maybe getting, not getting the best guidance in this. And again, I'm not here to, um, to, to bring down showcases. I don't think showcase are, are the, the end all evil, you know, just like weighted balls. We could talk about weighted balls. They're tools and they're, they're opportunities, but, um, you know, there, there are things going on when you we have radar guns going on and kids throwing max effort. And depending on the time of the year, all these different things that we were looking at and hoping to determine. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. So, yeah. So the second study, um, we were interested in what effect high school showcases would have on timing of ulnar collateral ligament tear. So whether it was early, mid or late career uh, on the professional careers of elite pitchers. Again, same uh, study group. We're looking at uh, pitchers that were selected in the top five rounds of the MLB draft between 2011 and this time 2017. We actually, uh, to avoid lead time bias, uh, what we found is it takes about four years from the time you're drafted to the time you first ha have your first, as a pitcher, your first MLB outing. So um, we we looked at a, a slightly smaller subset of these pitchers from 2011 to 2017 to allow for that lead time bias. And we go into the explanation of that in the article. So just that's, that's the background. So we were interested in examining how high showcase volumes during high school careers would um, during high school would affect the career trajectory of these pitchers, i.e. their likelihood of reaching the MLB level, but also how timing of UCL reconstruction, whether it was early versus late career, affected their professional career. So just jumping down to the key results, um, there were fewer pitchers with uh, early career UCL reconstructions that achieved the MLB level and overall played fewer total pro seasons compared to those pitchers that tore their UCL later in their career. Um, and just, just so folks know, define early and late in, in terms of like how it relates to when they sure. are. Sure. So, 
We did this kind of statistically. We first wanted to know if we were looking at a normal distribution, which the statistics showed we did. So it was a bell-shaped curve um, in terms of the age at when the pitcher first tore their UCL, okay? And so we used one standard deviation plus one and minus one standard deviation as kind of the cutoffs and use the tails of that. So if you were uh, minus one standard deviation, the, the age cutoff for that was about 19 years, I believe, uh, and mm-hmm. younger. And then for the plus one standard deviation, which was the late, that was about 24 or so. So um, we looked at those two tails, which which overall, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it was, it was between 25 and 30 pitchers in each of those groups for the second study. It was higher in the first one. Um, but we were very interested in those subgroups um, with some of these results. I love it. And so... So, so going back to the key results, so we, um, we compared the elite pitchers who achieved um, the MLB level versus pitchers who didn't achieve MLB. Okay, this is all comers. This wasn't the subgroups of early versus late. And so the pitchers who achieved the MLB level, level were older at their first high school showcase. They were older when showcasing a slider. They pitched in fewer high school showcases, and they had a longer time to tear of their ligament after achieving the 90, 92 mile per hour velocity thresholds. Um, so then we did multivariate, multivariable analysis. So it's logistic regression. And this is usually what everyone's interested in because it takes <laughs> what's significant in your univariate results and then puts them into this, this regression model. And we were assessing the likelihood of the pitchers achieving the MLB level. And we found that pitchers that pitched in equal to or greater than 10 high school showcases, they had half the odds of achieving the MLB level versus pitchers who uh, participate in less than 10 high school showcases. We also found that for every year longer that a pitcher did not tear their UCL after achieving that 90 mile per hour threshold, the likelihood of achieving the MLB level increased by 24%. Then we looked at- That's that's development right there. Yeah, and then we looked at, uh, we compared pitchers who sustained their UCL tear early, mid, and late career, and the pitchers who sustained late career UCL reconstructions had nearly a five-fold greater odds of achieving the MLB level. So take-home points here were that, you know, maybe we determined a a potential threshold for exposures and showcases, maybe equal to or greater than 10. If you surpass that, maybe that has a detrimental effect on your career trajectory. Now, 10 showcases sounds like a lot of showcases, but if you're on a travel team, particularly if you live in Marietta, Georgia, when we were doing this study, it was amazing. The the kids in Georgia, man, they just live at at some of these complexes during the summer. They're there for certainly more than 10 showcases in in a year. We're not even talking about high school career, okay? Um, So maybe equal to or greater than 10 showcases in high school is that cutoff, or maybe you should be careful if you're approaching that as a potential risk. Um, We also found, or, you know, one of our take-home points was that the timing of ulnar collateral ligament uh, reconstruction matters. So about 50%, 48.1% of early UCL reconstruction pictures achieved the major league level. So less than half compared to 86.2% who tore their UCL later in their career. So, you know, I think one of the real take-home messages from this paper is when an elite pitcher tears their UCL rather than if they tear matters most as it relates to their career trajectory. And if you can delay UCL reconstruction, you're going to have the best odds of achieving the MLB level. Do you think some of this is um, 
is what kind of, uh, I guess, allows us to appreciate why, why in general college draft picks seem to work out better as major leaguers is that you think about it. Most of the guys that are going to college, you know, there were people that had a window of adaptation ahead of them. They saw something. I mean, Max Scherzer is a longtime client. Max is, you know, adamant that short of incredibly life-changing money, you know, that high school guys should all go to college, you know, and he speaks largely from the perspective of, you know, the camaraderie, the competition, the maturity, all that sort of things. But, you know, most of the guys that are going to college in many cases are the kids that are 86 to 89, they need to find strength conditioning and optimize mechanics. And then, you know, three years later, they're in a much better spot. Do you think that's why we are, you know, as an industry seeing more success with, with college draft picks, you know, you very rarely see a high school kid in the ninth round get picked, you know, for, you know, for slot money who, who makes it, but then you see all the time, these guys who come out of the woodwork and, and really, really thrive from, from colleges. I think so. I mean, just, just doing, building this database, spending over a year, really diving deep into it. It's, it's pretty clear to me as a researcher that, the pathway to the MLB and, 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 you know, I can, I can pull up that second study. You know, when you look at, I'll, I'll do it right now. I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but when you look at, there's a table in our study uh, of comparison of, of pitchers who achieved MLB level and those that didn't, um, you know, when you look at, uh, so the pitchers that achieved MLB, uh, 71% of them, 72%, went to college where only 56% uh, that didn't uh, achieve the MLB level went to college. So big, big difference in those numbers. I think, I think scouts certainly know that. I don't think enough parents know that um, or, or maybe high level pitchers know that too. But uh, I just think when you're looking at, and this is what we're talking about, right? Is career longevity. I think, yeah. um, I think it yeah. behooves you to stay on, on a trajectory and not, burn out like a shooting star, you know, in your first two yeah. to three years. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is just the top five rounders, right? Correct. So there's, there's 15 more rounds and there's undrafted free agents. And, you know, so I think that number is going to skyrocket even higher just because most of the guys that make it after those rounds are going to be college guys for the most part. You don't, you don't see a lot of high school kids signing in the, you know, 17th round. It's a very different kind of dynamic there. Um, so, so to maybe tie a bow on it, big picture showcases, you know, obviously key, key takeaway, as we know, Guys who throw harder are more likely to to injure their UCL. That's that's pretty much slam dunk across the the literature across you know decades at this point. Let's let's throw out some of the other key comp, uh, I guess takeaways from your two studies that you think are the most important. You know, really like take home points for folks. Yeah, I mean, I think we can kind of get to this. It, it's just I think it's all about risk benefit. You know, I think if you're looking at showcases, um, you know, I. I so I'm going to back up just for a second. So, you know, yeah. you're building and maybe I'm just an inexperienced researcher. I, I mean, I've been doing enough of these studies, but I don't mm -hmm. do like halfway through the, the build out of the database, a preliminary analysis. I probably should. So, you know, we're build just think about this. We're building this, this database out of, of, of over 800 pitchers. You know, we, we, and we looked at subsets, but like it took a good six months of time doing this and we had no clue or no idea what our results are going to be. So um, it, it's, it's just, sometimes you get lucky. Um, but obviously that's why you do a statistical analysis so that it's more than luck, right? <laughs> if we're talking about P values and everything else or, or yeah. more than chance. Right. So, you know, I, I think what, I've learned from this, if I were a parent of a high school pitcher who really had 
uh, a good skill set and really had a chance of playing at the next level and maybe beyond, I would really think twice about signing up for showcases before the age of 16. You know, our, our results didn't support a moratorium, but it really comes down to risk benefit. And obviously you have to weigh that, that opportunity to pitch in front of a, a group of college coaches or scouts. Uh, but the flip side is, is your risk of injury. So, you know, I, I think, think twice about that. I think the there, there's a window there where if you're waiting until 16, you should have enough time to, um, depending on what level you want to play at, still be recruited and, and, and get enough exposures. You know, I think a couple things, if I'm counseling patients and parents about showcase participation, particularly for pitchers, I would say try to familiarize yourself with pitch smart guidelines. I, I think everyone seems to think they know what they are, um, but there's been plenty of studies that show that, that people really aren't familiar with them. And it's, it's really a good resource that really a lot of what we're talking about should be predicated on. Um, I think you have to ensure an adequate ramp up prior to participating in a showcase. I, I would recommend avoiding early season showcases and we can talk about the regional differences here. Everything seems to revolve around the, the Southeast calendar. You know, Florida kids are starting high school baseball, you know, what last week it was. So I feel like it was a month ago at this yeah, point. Right? We're, we're well, talking on February 21st. That's crazy. very different from a kid yeah. in the Northeast or Mid-Atlantic yeah. who, who isn't going to have their first game till April 1st. So they're ramping up, you know, going to these pro cases and these Southern showcases, and they still have two months to kind of maintain that max yeah. velocity effort. I think that's a risk factor for sure. Um, mm -hmm. I think avoiding late season showcases. So if you're approaching that hundred inning threshold as has been put out there by pitch smart, think twice about going to, you know, an October showcase. I think you, you can't assume that your travel organization or the tournaments or the showcase organizer organizers are going to really enforce the pitch smart guidelines in terms of pitch counts and day of days of rest. So don't assume. Um, and then finally, if, if you're a pitcher that has shoulder and elbow pain leading up to a showcase event, don't go. I mean, yeah, there's the cost of the hotel and the airfare and everything else, but that that's uh, that pales in comparison to missed time recovering from a UCL reconstruction and, and just the psychological impact of that sometimes. Yeah, I think also it speaks to maybe just the, the importance of creating a calendar, right? And, and sticking to it. You know, it's very easy to to kind of just start adding and adding and adding and not really appreciating how that cumulative stress comes up. But I think you made a great point is, you know, it's make sure if you are going to showcase, you know, do it at the right ages. Nobody cares how you look at age 15, but, you know, if you're going to do it, do it later and put it into part of an overall picture where it's not happening in January when you're not built up. And it's also not happening at the end of October when you're, you know, you're exhausted. It's been a long season and you're ready to go play soccer or football or something like that. Um, yeah, there are a lot so, of variables, right? Because it's, it's you know, yeah. just because we've been through it too. Like sometimes yeah. you sign up for an organization, like you're, you have to go if you're a, 14 you and the rest of the organization's going, then you're going to the showcase too. So I, I don't yeah. think parents and, and, and players necessarily have a lot of control over that. But to your point, what, what, what really are you trying to see in a 14 year old at a showcase, you know, and, <laughs> and maybe some of these exposures at that key critical point in their development are more detrimental than beneficial. Yeah. So obviously showcases are really big business. Um, you know, and it may be part of a larger challenging trend of, you know, people kind of selling out for, you know, in some cases the wrong thing, don't get, don't get me wrong, velocity sells and it gets outs and all that stuff. But, you know, sometimes it is people that are putting the, you know, the carriage in front of the horse, you know, what, what are the, some, 
maybe some of the specific guidelines that you go through with your parents that and your patients, obviously, when you counsel them coming off an injury, like, you know, how, how do we change this trend of thinking that we've always got to be go, go, go? Yeah. Um, I think the, the hardest difficulty now is the sense of urgency, right? It's a race against time coming off of an yeah. injury. Um, even, even kids that have had Tommy John. So, you know, there's going to be the surgeon's protocol, uh, and then, you know, and that, that, that's maybe not the best example, but let's, let's take a common injury. Let's talk about, you know, uh, a low grade or maybe a partial tear of the UCL proximal distal, whatever we want to call it, um, in a kid. And it's, it's February, right? Cause that's, that is a common scenario now. Um, and so when that kid's in your office, we're under a lot of pressure to get an MRI, you know, because, uh, you know, the, everyone's, the calendar is dictated by this injury and, and, and to some extent, the grade of the injury. And I think that's where we kind of fall into this, this pitfall of ordering a lot of MRIs because you can, to some extent, determine, uh, the, the severity of a UCL injury. But my point with that is, you know, after you get the imaging, there's going to be some rehabilitation. Um, and then there should be uh, an interval throwing program before you're getting back to competitive pitching. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of becomes a negotiation process, right? Everything's a negotiation now, whether it's treatment of spondylolysis, how long are you going to be in the brace or how long are you out? I got this big tournament coming up and I really need to be ready for that. So that, that's the challenge of practicing sports medicine in this age, mm-hmm. as you know. Um, you know, I think we've gotten smarter about it. We, um, we've listened to our, our physical therapy friends and community. You know, we've, we started utilizing more functional movement screens. Um, I'm a big advocate of using two-dimensional video analysis. It's very pragmatic. Um, and where we can identify potential weaknesses or mobility issues in the kinetic chain. And that, that's really, um, helpful for us to, to demonstrate to the pitcher or the athlete and their parents, Hey, look, there's something here that needs to be corrected. You know, I know you want to be throwing 92 in Florida in three months, but um, we've identified some things here that we really think you need to work on. And sometimes that approach um, you know, these kids love information, right? Whether it's uh, uh, Rhapsody or any of these things, you know, hit tracks, they love it. And so sometimes seeing their own video analysis or, or being able to see, Hey, maybe, maybe my total arc of motion in my shoulder isn't where it should be. And it starts making sense to them, you know, and, and sometimes you, they, you can get them off of that sense of urgency to get back into, to a game situation. So I, I think that's, what's kind of evolved. You know, I think most of us that are doing this and treating young athletes and throwing athletes have, have, have been going to conferences and listening to, um, you know, the entire arm care community. I, I think we're all trying to be pretty cohesive with, with the assessment, but also, you know, a multidisciplinary approach to it too. Yeah. And I think we have to be, you know, kind of just let in my next question is, you know, injuries have gotten much more complex. I mean, I, I saw a kid who had an anterior dislocation of his shoulder throwing away the ball. Like that didn't exist, yeah. you know, 10 years ago, you know, we, we've seen guys who have fully evolved, you know, their lat off the humerus, you know, we're, we're seeing obviously thoracic outlet at, at all time highs, you know, whether it's that it's actually happening more, or it's being diagnosed better. We're seeing all these crazy things. You know, has your, has your clinic experience, you know, reflect that, that you're seeing more weird things than ever before, but also, you know, has it created a scenario where you're, you're kind of your diagnostic algorithm 
has changed. Where, where diagnosis has gotten substantially harder, you need more tools in your toolbox to to get to the root cause. Yeah, there's no question. I, I think um, if you're really seeing a lot of throwing athletes, it's complex, right? Uh, yeah. And the differential diagnosis has grown more expansive, you know, particularly in this era of year-round throwing and just performance training. I, I, one aside, thoracic outlet syndrome in particular, I think that's it's a very humbling diagnosis. It's oftentimes elusive. It sees us more than it's yeah. we see it. Uh, diagnosis of exclusion. Right? Yeah. And, and so oftentimes what's nice is you'll have a therapist says, hey, have you thought about TOS in this kid? And, you know, you're thinking, yeah, I, you know. Or yes, or maybe, geez, I, I hadn't even thought of that. And that ultimately is the diagnosis. You know, you, they got a cervical rib or there's something else that you pick up on an x-ray and you're like, okay, now now this ties it all together. Um, you know, we, we talked about you know, common things that have in common, the medial elbow pain, which we see all the time, the pressure to get MRI. You know, we just kind of talked about uh, how maybe the, the diagnostic algorithm hasn't changed much, but just that sense of urgency and the, the lack of willingness to rest, you know, uh, unless that, that's the, that's, that's my biggest challenge is if, yeah. if there's something that isn't, isn't uh, requiring a surgery, you know, that, that that's a more of a conservative management boy, it gets into a negotiation and that's where I think things break down sometimes. So, um, you know, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's definitely gotten more complex. Um, and the trend is, is going to continue as the pitching velocities climb yeah. and kids aren't, you know, it, it's nice to see, I think more kids are, are understanding the importance of strength training. We can certainly segue into that at some point, but, yeah. um, I, I think, and I always preach this too, that, you know, I know in, in the South kids don't really have an off season, but here up North, I really, try to persuade particularly pitchers not to pitch in fall ball, do a strength and conditioning program and really address some of these uh, weak links in their kinetic chain, their mobility, their, just their athleticism, you know, speed, agility, mobility, explosivity, all the stuff now that a lot of people like you and, 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 you know, can name a number, number of people in the strength and conditioning community that have really opened our eyes to in the past 10, 15 years. I, I love the fall spring split in a, in a Northeast athlete, you know, finish up fall sport at Thanksgiving. You got plenty of time to do a gradual on-ramp of a throwing program to get ready for the third Monday in March. You got time to put everything together, you know, a little chart trickier when they play basketball and they're, you know, going like gangbusters all the way up to the start of the season. But um, yeah, it doesn't happen in Florida. You know, it's, it's a very different experience being down here where you know, the calendar doesn't even allow you to play multiple sports. You, you really have to pick and it's, Honestly, it's too bad. Um, and and it, it, like as you said, it's it, it's really hard to see this trend correcting because guys are continuing to throw you know harder and harder, specializing earlier and earlier. I think to some degree, the, the only way it corrects is if we protect them, you know, from themselves. The quality of I, I don't want to say the quality of play is improved because I think we can agree that some of the baseball is actually terrible because it's so much showcase ball and so few fundamentals at times. But um, I think we are seeing absolutely electric arms, and that's not going anywhere. Yeah, and I think. The tough part not to give in someone is that more is better. You know, I think everyone from particularly the kids, like we have kids that in our strength and conditioning program, they're working out with us four days a week, but they're also working out at their high schools at 6 a.m. So they're working out like in the morning and at night. And then they're they're it's doing true. their their bullpen sessions and they're 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 throwing, you know, sprinkled in there in the week too. So like that's that's tough because like as you know and I know. 
rest and recovery really is, promotes gains, you know, and, and yeah. that's what's tough to get a, a 15 or a 16 or yeah. 17 year old kid to realize. And what, what do you do with these, these, you know, speaking of 15 and 17 year olds, like, what do you do when they have Tommy John's? You know, I, I mean, that not like in a methodology standpoint, you know, it's, it's collectively, what do we all do when these guys get to pro ball? You know, like, you know, you heard different perspectives crossing what the useful life of a ligament reconstruction is. Yeah. And, you know, what happens when these kids who have a Tommy John at 16, 17 or, or 28, 29, you know, five years deep on a big league career? Um, like, do you, do you worry about those ligaments? Is there an element of chronicity that scares you? Yeah. So you just touched on a couple of everything. So, you know, I obviously in the, the first study we did where we did that, it's a very very provocative table. You'll see it when you look at the article. And by the way, I'm going to provide you um, for your followers. I've got some links, just a comment here. So yeah. the publisher doesn't allow us to make the PDF final copy of the articles mm -hmm. available through electronic medium. They're available like if you have an institutional or a, a personal subscription mm -hmm. to AJSM, but they do allow mm -hmm. us to um, make available the original mans manuscript or the final manuscript that was, was, um, uh, was, was presented to them. So I have okay. that it's, it's, you know, it's obviously cool. like in times new Roman, but it has all the figures in the table. So this is oh, in the table I'm talking about, but there's a table in there that really shows the trends and it, it has dual Y axis. And so it's got line, line charts going in different directions, but it really is, is interesting when you look at that, um, just the age uh, at which kids are tearing it. And it's, it's just a inverse curve. It's coming down faster and faster. So, you know, if they're tearing at younger ages, nearly four years younger than they were a decade ago, you know, they go and have Tommy John, which allows them to return to play at a high level. So at least for a window of time there, they're back to doing what they want to do. The concern, I think, is is what happens when that primary reconstruction, their first Tommy John fails. And, and Dr. Andrews and his group published, I think, an AGSM in 2020 uh, about the outcomes after UCL re revision reconstruction. So the second Tommy John surgery in baseball players, not just pitchers, but mm -hmm. position players too. And the results weren't very pretty. Only about half of the baseball players that underwent a second Tommy John surgery were able to return to their previous level of competition. So uh, outcomes for a revision reconstruction are not as promising as the primary mm -hmm. procedure. And so other authors have evaluated the revision UCL reconstruction of the second Tommy John surgery in, in MLB players as well. And of those undergoing the second TJ, the mean time in years between their first and second TJ was about three to five years. So if you look at that, and then if kids are tearing at younger and younger ages, a subset of those that are able to achieve pro ball are going to be undergoing revision surgery or their second Tommy John earlier in their career. So I think career length for those pitchers that undergo an early career UCL is going to be shorter. And that, that was really one of the findings we found in our, our recent publication. So I think you're going to, you know, this should be about longevity. You know, you look at yeah. guys like Justin Verlander who tore at what, 39, you know, yeah. that's uh, 38. I think, yeah. Give or take. I think it's, yeah. um, uh, or, you know, Nolan Ryan, another example, right? So like, like we're not going to see that as much anymore. Yeah. These, these guys are going to be on there. The real question, you know, because if you've had two revisions, if you had two Tommy Johns, I, I'm not aware of anyone. There may be one or two, maybe not the MLB level, that have come back. Well, I take that uh, Nathan Avaldi did, didn't he? Didn't he have two Tommy yeah. Johns? So there are a few out there. Right? 
Uh, yeah, Jameis and Tyler. Yeah, there, there are quite a few that have made it back. There are very few. I, I, I want to say there may be one or two that have had three, which is right. it's just shocking. Um, I know that's been discussed but, in the past, but, but it, it can't the, it can't bode well for career longevity, yeah. right? I mean, you might be yeah, coming back four, for four and a half years of missed time, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just too long away. Um, all right, so I, I'm I'm going to give you the magic wand, and and you can pick three things about the youth youth baseball dynamic that you can change to keep players healthy. And this may be, you know, what you do with the actual way the game is, I guess, structured, you know, from a calendar or the way players prepare or anything else. What, what are the adjustments that you make? You know, and, and obviously let's focus particularly with respect to kind of arm injuries. Yeah. I, I don't think I can do it in three wishes, um, but I, I can, I can name yeah. off and rattle off a number of things that I think are important. Some of these are just stream of consciousness, but I, I, I think first and foremost, there should be less, emphasis on achieving velocity thresholds at early ages, 15 and 16, like we talked about. I always tell pitchers, kids that, you know, the cream is going to rise to the top. You, you know, sometimes at 15, 16, where a kid is heading, stay on your trajectory. Don't look for the quick gains. You know, we didn't have uh, discussions about some things like weighted balls and it's a tool. I'm, I'm not, I'm not discouraging weighted balls altogether, but certainly not in young kids. And we could talk about the reason for that. Um, but don't look for quick gains, which typically are going to have high risk reward ratios, right? And, and trust the process. Hopefully find a good coach, a good um, good instructor, whether you're a pitcher, a position player, and, and really trust them and their process. You know, Kids need to get off their phones. They need to focus more on their own development. Everyone's looking at everyone else's metrics online. And, and it's, it's uh, uh, you know, I think we didn't talk a lot about mental health, but that that's a, that's a big factor in all of this, right? Um, I think strength training has to be integrated into your program um, for you to succeed at, at higher levels. Um, and, and it can be safely done with supervision as early as, as middle school. I'll give a plug out to Avi, Avery uh, Fagenbaum, who's yeah. in New Jersey. Hopefully you've read some of this yeah. stuff, but uh, you know, he's, he's really trying to get this word out. You know, we've totally disintegrated gym class and gym programs. And, you know, you know, now the, the trouble is not everyone can afford a strength and conditioning program, you know, so you, we didn't really talk about this, but, um, you know, sports have become pay to play. And there's, there's a whole subset of kids that just aren't getting a chance because they don't have the economic means. So, yeah. um, other things we talked more is not better. Um, rest yeah. and recovery promotes gains. Um, I do think there's, uh, there's some work to do to reform the showcase in the tournament system. I think, uh, there's some opportunity here for those organizations to work with medical and arm care professionals and communities to enforce these pitch counts in the days of rest. Um, and I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel. I think we should we should give okay. Pitch Smart a chance. It's been rolled out now eight years, um, yeah. but it has not been universally adopted or enforced. And I think yeah. there's ways that we could look at that and potentially penalize those travel organizations, those coaches that are not in compliance, and and really potentially reduce elbow and shoulder injuries. That's a lot of really good stuff. So I I apologize for trying to uh, just you know, funnel you into three. Cause there was a lot of really good stuff there. Um, Hey, I want to, I want to shift gears just, to, you know, quickly. And um, I appreciate you, you taking the time for this, but stress fractures, obviously, um, you know, spondies, you know, in the lumbar spine, it's, it's a huge business. A lot of people don't appreciate it, um, but it's a big, big deal in baseball players. Um, like I said, I, I first got exposed to one in 06 
Um, and I, I've lost track of how many kids that we have trained, you know, while they've been in back races. Um, and I'd love to get your take on some best practices. So I'll, I'll speak from my experience. Sure. Um, you know, they, they call it the Boston back brace, right? I know yeah, Boston some, overlapping some brace. Yeah. And, and I know you've, you've done some great work with, with Dr. Demoncourt from mm-hmm. Children's Hospital, who's, you know, was one of the, the doctors that we worked with the most yeah. in my, my time in, in Massachusetts. What was interesting to me is when we opened our Florida facility in 2014 coming down here is, you know, it was very standard. Pretty much everybody got braced in Massachusetts. And um, when we came to Florida, we saw it much, much less. We still would see some, but kids would come in and um, it was a different kind of methodology. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I never really had a strong opinion one way or another. Um, I know the research was very supportive of, you know, the bracing helping from a healing standpoint, but I think the concern was always, was there, you know, too much of a functional loss when people were there? Where do you stand on some of this stuff? So I trained at Boston Children's Hospital. So, you know, there are camps, there's the brace camp and there's the no brace camp. And and, uh, Stan Herring and his group up at University of Washington in Seattle, they're they're kind of the no brace camp, but most most areas around the country are also no brace, and so mm-hmm. uh, it's a it's it's a challenge. And you know, I think those of us that trained in in those types of areas are, feel strongly about the way, just because that's the the method that we learned. Mm-hmm. You know, the brace. Uh, I can tell you, I'll share a little bit of information. So we're doing a study right now at Rhode Island Hospital and Boston Children's Hospital where we've looked at all of the, the uh, active spondies, meaning that there's swelling at the site of the, not chronic injuries, but acute and subacute spondies in the last yeah. five years in kind of this advanced imaging era where we've been getting routinely MRIs. Um, mm. And so we've got almost a thousand kids in the last five years. So, you know, it's basically 200 kids a year uh, with this injury here in the Northeast in a variety of different sports. And, you know, this is not... Um, a study that has different arms where there's brace, no brace, but um, there, there's certainly different, there's different lengths of bracing. I, I, the, the, the work that Dr. Demacourt and others have done, Dr. McKaylee, it's, it's standardly a, a 16 week bracing protocol where for at least the first 12 weeks, you're in a, a hard brace and then you transition yeah. into a more functional soft brace um, yeah. with some support at around 12 to 16 weeks. Um, the difference between the two, the brace and the no braces, if, if you're in the bracing protocol at four to six weeks into the brace, if you don't have pain with that provocative hyperextension testing, uh, we oftentimes let you back into sport in your brace if it allows it. Okay. Whereas if you're in a no brace protocol, oftentimes those clinicians are waiting sometimes five, six months before they're letting them to return to sports. Now, it also differs, I can tell you just from doing the study, between primary care sports doctors and orthopedic surgeons in terms of the length of the time of the brace. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. for an orthopedic surgeon, it, it can be a shorter time period, maybe six mm-hmm. to eight weeks, and then they transition them out of the brace. And, and, and I think their overall goal is to reduce pain mm-hmm. and, and minimize pain and not necessarily try to get a bony union. And, and obviously, yeah. that's depending on what when you first – first see the athlete, you know, the, the challenge here is when, when they have back pain, as we kind of talked about before that kind of the three weeks, which I think is really when you should go in and see someone that manages these mm-hmm. injuries and not maybe your primary care doctor, but you know, they go to the primary care doctor or a walk-in or an urgent care and they get a, a script of physical therapy or they go see their chiropractor and you, you're kind of, it's this window of opportunity to correctly diagnose it. And by the time they ultimately come to some of us, it's three, four months and they've got a non-union. They have a fracture there and there's 
there's really no opportunity to get the, the fracture to heal. And that, that, that may not be the primary objective of the treatment. You know, it's to reduce pain, get them back to their sport, get them functional. But if there's an opportunity to get bone to bone healing, um, sometimes that can reduce morbidity later in the condition. Yeah. For instance, if you just have a unilateral a fracture or uh, early fracture on one side, if you can get that to heal, if you don't, then it, it increases the risk to some extent that they're going to develop a fracture on the contralateral side at that yeah. same level, you know, if it's an L5, L4 Absolutely. vertebrae. And then you're looking at slip, right? You're looking at listhesis yeah. and and other things. And, and my yeah. own clinical experience with this injury and yours probably as well is like, there's a lot of morbidity with it. It's, it's not, yes. it's not just a, a couple of weeks and, and you're back doing it. It rears its head a lot. And I think what I'm learning from at least the, the data extraction that I'm doing and then that where we are in the study is, you know, the most important thing is early detection and, and, and again, a brace can be part of um, mm-hmm. the treatment protocol, but that's, just part of it. A lot of it is the physical therapy, yeah. the core strength thing, addressing the muscle imbalances. If they've got tight hamstrings or tight erector spinae, weak weak lower abdominals, uh, weak glutes, you know, all of this is is part of it. Um, I think there may ultimately be a, a role for bone stimulators too. That's what a lot yeah. of so some people are looking at. There's not a lot of good evidence yeah. suggesting it yet, but I think as some of these studies get done, we'll we'll have a get better sense at which tools or what combination of tools. Uh, improves outcomes. I think the, you know, where I've always wrestled with the brace is, you know, what you love about them is they're stupid proof, right? Kids, they, they really can't get into trouble. It effectively restricts them enough so that, you know, them exacerbating their symptoms is, is off the table. Obviously that's, that goes hand in hand with a, a limitation to, you know, certain activities. And, you know, I think they do great when you, when you send them to physical therapy, they get out of the brace a couple times a week and, you know, they're in a, a safe environment where they can't get into trouble. I think where I've struggled with them is, is sometimes the return to action is so fast. And, and if you're in one of those for, you know, eight to 16 weeks, whatever it is, you, you see folks, they, they run differently or they run with less hip flexion. They don't fully hip extend. You know, they often lose thoracic rotation and the ability to kind of create that hip shoulder separation yeah. the way you want it. So um, you know, I, I actually wonder if that's where some of the challenges come from in terms of the ones who do have setbacks is that it's, you know, it's, it's zero to 60 really, really quickly the second they take the brace off. Yeah. I mean, there are certain things we try to do, right? We, we can do a sports trim and you can, you can um, yeah. trim the brace down so you can get a little bit better hip flexion and, and improve a little bit of, mm-hmm. of mobility. But there are also certain sports that I think are easier to kind of go back to your sport in a brace versus not. Obviously, something where there's a lot of extension, uh, like, yeah. like gymnastics, is going to be challenging. Yeah. But baseball, softball, you know, there's just too much um, rotational force that's being generated to really do that in a yeah. brace. Whereas a sport like basketball, uh, lacrosse it seemed to tolerate a little bit better too. So it, it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's a tough sell. There's no question. I think mm-hmm. it's a long conversation. You know, when we're uh, diagnosing these kids and talking about a management strategy, it's a 45 minute visit. You know, there's no way yeah. to, to make it shorter. Um, so there's a lot of counseling that goes into it and just talking about uh, some of the statistics in terms of healing rates and everything else too. But even in the best of circumstances, it can be a hard injury to heal. Yeah. You know, and, you know, maybe a quick aside to that is the, the ones that we've had, we have guys that are pitching in the big leagues who, who we knew who had spawnies in, in younger ages. And, um, you know, all the other ones that are on top of my mind, they, they do very, very well now. It's kind of an afterthought at this point. I do remember there were kind of just years of 
you know, they have just those random days of stiffness. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was never like a true, like, Hey, I fractured my arm when I was eight and I, they put me in a cast and then I was good to go. It's like, they do kind of experience those bouts when you kind of have to counsel them on like, Hey, these are the days to pull back a little bit, just kind of extend the warm up, load less, cut back on volume. And they, they always seem to do well. It's when they try to plow through it that they often set themselves back. Yeah. And I, I think there's a little uh, kinesiophobia with it too. Once they've had it, yeah. right, there's the fear of re-injury and whether or not it's really, you know, the non-union that's causing pain or it's, you know, they've got a little disdegeneration at the level above or below or uh, some some more mechanical low back pain, you know, it's often, you know, like, like you said, it's, it's very rare. Sometimes you'll see it like with a chronic spondy, there's a little bit of edema around it or in the pars itself, but it's really hard to sort out and determine whether that's really their pain generator, particularly for the chronic ones. I, I always, I'm sure you're familiar with the Soler and Calderon study from the American Journal of Medicine back in two, uh, American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2000. And they looked at Spondy cases in Spanish lead athletes. And, and I, I've had this in like my 85 PowerPoints I've done over the years. But what was fascinating to me is they, they found that 8% of elite Spanish athletes, you know, had a, a diagnosed stress fracture in their spine. You know, it's 27% of track and field throwers, 17% of rowers, 14% of gymnasts, and 13% of weightlifters. And, um, but they, they, they noted that only 50 to 60% of those diagnosed actually reported low, low back pain. And they, they estimated that the presence was between 15 and 63%, which is, is a big, big range. And, and I've always said, we, we have to blow this out of the water in the U S right. We have lacrosse, we yeah. have hockey, we have baseball. We, you know, about the only sport we, we share in common with them is probably soccer and tennis, but probably most simply like strength training is, is far more accepted here than it, than it was in Spain in 2000. Um, if you had to estimate, and, and I, I've seen more, you know, major league baseball spine, you know, radiology reports than I can count. I, I feel like there's a spondy, you know, they didn't even know it was there on, on 75%. Yeah. I don't know where your head's at with the numbers. Are these incredibly common incidental findings? So uh, I, I mean, I'm familiar with that Spanish study. There was also just some another one that you can add to your PowerPoint, but I, I did come across a study that 30% of Japanese uh, professional baseball pitchers have spondy. So that I don't know what year that was, but but I, yeah. that, that was something as well. So very common. You almost wonder to some extent if it's a rite of passage, right? If you yeah. are generating those kind of forces uh, yeah. and, you know, as you allude to, I do think, you know, we, we know there's a certain age, right? There's that, that's that 15, 16 year old who's going through rapid growth where um, yeah. you got the pelvic cross syndrome going on and, you know, tight muscles, imbalances, everything else. So that, that's kind of the perfect storm too. But then you throw on to that, um, a kid who's potentially a, a high level kid and just the, the volume of activity they're doing. And then you throw strength and conditioning and maybe they're not getting the best supervision with their back squats and, and deadlifts. And yeah, I, I think that's where, um, I, I, I think it is. I think we see a lot of it and a lot of it is obviously asymptomatic. You know, we'll see it incidentally on x-rays that we're getting for other reasons. It's, it's interesting. We just, we talked about arm injuries and then we detoured and we talked about, you know, lumbar spine injuries. And, and here we are finding a commonality between the two is, you know, don't be an idiot at ages 12 to 16, yeah. <laughs> you know, be, be intelligent, play multiple sports, you know, get into strength training safely, um, understand how to kind of periodize your calendar so that, 
you know, I, you know, I, I steal this line from my, my business partner, Shane, but he always says, listen, when it whispers, so you don't have to wait for it to yell. That's a good line. Yeah. Really we, we aren't listening to enough whispering. Um, <laughs> and I, again, the, the calendar dictates that so much. It's this, it's sense of urgency and not time in the calendar to rest, you know, and that, that's, that's, what's tough. Particularly when you look at just a, a low grade UCL sprain, we're, we're going to recommend four to six weeks of, of throwing restrictions. Right. And then, then hopefully you're not getting deconditioned while you're rehabbing, but then you need to really get back into some sort of an interval throwing program. And it's, that's a tough sell, you know, any time of year, yeah. right? That's very important. Um, so you kind of start to tie a bow on this. What's next for you? I mean, you're doing some, some really cool stuff. Obviously you have your clinical practice and I know you're a baseball dad, you got a million things in irons on the fire. Yeah. Like what gets you excited now? Like, where do you think we need to, either build on this research or really take this thing into practice? I mean, for me, this has really invigorated my interest in injury prevention. You know, I've, I've always wanted to have as part of my clinical practice, but also as part of my research practice, um, involvement in forming policy and particularly reducing injury. And so I think there may be some opportunities for me and for a number of us to potentially partner with some of these higher level organizations to potentially act as some, some medical advisors um, with some of this. But I, I, you know, I, I don't think we should be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I, I think fundamentally I like, uh, like pitch smart. And I just think we should go back to that and say, Hey, it's been out for eight years, but have we really given it a chance? And, um, and maybe universally adopt that and try to get some agreement uh, at a higher level, particularly at the tournament showcase level. So I think that that's where I'm, I'm taking this. I'm someone that likes to obviously do research, but then try to find a way to implement it into public health. Um, and I think that's going to be my, my next crusade. You know, both my kids are out of the house now. Uh, we're empty nesting, so I've got a little bit more time in my nights. I'm not out as many fields and things, and uh, but uh, you know, I, I think I've got I, I think I've got another 12, 15 years in the tank to to really try to make some changes uh, and save some arms. That's awesome. Well, you know, certainly I think we we can all agree that we appreciate what you're doing to uh, to contribute to the body of knowledge and, you know, keep uh, keep young arms on the field. That's a really important stuff. Um, you have a wonderful social media presence on Twitter. It's Dr. P. Chris Brown, you um, and obviously, you know, folks in, in the Northeast, you know, you're an awesome clinical resource for folks, whether you deal with low back injuries, shoulders, elbows or, or anything else. Um, so hopefully they check you out. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. This was uh, this is really, really good stuff. And I was looking forward to it. And you you lived up to all my expectations. Likewise, Eric, it's a, a pleasure meeting you and, and have a tremendous amount of respect for your work. I've read through all your blogs on Spondy, everything. I mean, it's it's gold. It really is. And, and I think hopefully other people, you know, obviously you have a big social media presence, too. But I, I enjoy going back into some of your early stuff and digging through. It's really great stuff. I appreciate it. Well, keep fighting the good fight and thank you again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you.